Welcome to the First Prez Podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. Our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Prez at firstprezcos.org. Hey, good morning, church. It's awesome to see you gathered up here filling this place up for the glory of the Lord, giving Him this hour. You know, God meets us. The scriptures say He inhabits the praises of His people. And this hour becomes sacred because as we call out to Jesus, He responds to us, and He's with us by His Holy Spirit, and He's at work in our lives, making us different. And uh, man, that just that was powerful worship for me. And I don't think we appreciate our praise band as much as we ought to sometimes. And, and um, they're, uh, they can hear you when you do that. They're in hiding right now in an undisclosed location. <laughs> But they're watching the service and they can hear you, so that appreciation means so much. Hey, we're going back to our series, Good Job, uh, and we're looking at the workplace today, Good Job at Work. Last week we had our, see, we had, last weekend was like our Super Bowl weekend for a church. You know, I don't even care about the Super Bowl tonight, because we had Super Bowl last weekend with uh, the, the Vision Weekend, and I hope that you are, if you missed some of that, that you'll go back and check into it, as our, as our comms team said. Uh, they've put everything together, they've packaged everything up, you can go back and catch whatever you want. But right now we get back into our series, Good Job at Work, and we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, so I encourage you to open your Bibles. We did Titus 1 two weeks ago, we've got Titus 2 now, we'll do Titus 3 in a couple of weeks from now, and we're going to look at Titus 2 verses 1 to 14, and as we open the scriptures, let's open our hearts to the Lord's work. Let's pray. Lord, as we go to your holy word, we pray that you would use it to shape us, to change us, to teach us, to instruct us, to guide us. We could know things we didn't know before, understand things we didn't understand before, that we could walk towards you with love, and that we could know, Lord, that we are yours in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said? Amen. Amen. Okay, Titus chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's word. We're grateful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Difficult passage, isn't it? And we'll get there. We'll get there. Good job at work. When I was a kid, one of the things I liked to do the most was uh, get in the sandbox. Anybody like the sandbox in the house today? You got some? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, if I was left behind at the uh, playground for a while, that's where you'd find me. You'd find me in the sand. And what I, was, what I like to do is I like to build pyramids. Or actually, what I like to do is build ziggurats, if you want to get serious about it. You know a ziggurat? You know what a ziggurat is? It's like the little thing that goes up and it goes in, goes up, goes in, goes up, goes in. And I would work on these things assiduously. I would work, I would like apply myself to it with all, everything I had to square off those angles, flatten out the top, make sure the next square was like exactly the right size and dead in the middle and then put the next one on there and up and up until I got down to the very top, you know, and I was working on just making this perfect little tiny square with like three or four grains of sand and then I would get it just perfect, just perfect just in time for some bratty kid to come run along and jump on it, right? Anybody experience that? You know, it was just too much of a temptation for them. And what did I learn? I learned that work can be frustrating. No matter how hard you work at it, no matter how hard you try to make it perfect, sometimes it doesn't last, sometimes it doesn't do what you wanted it to do, work can be frustrating. But there it is, and we were made to work. In our Good Job series, we've talked about how God has made us to work, to make something of the world. And in fact, it's all encapsulated in this Genesis 1.28 verse. Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them, talking about Adam and Eve, God blessed them. And in that blessing, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It's Genesis 1.28. It's called the cultural mandate that we were made by God to make something of the world, to work in the world. We were made by God to do it, but work can be frustrating, and after the fall, it can be cursed, it can be, it can be incomplete, there can be a lot of frustration in it, but the mission of Jesus is to redeem the fallen world, to fix what was broken, to heal what was wounded, to put things back together again. So in Jesus, work, work can be redeemed again. Your job can be glorious if you glorify God in your job. So... Today we talk about the actual workplace in this series. Good job at work. Tough passage though, right? Titus 2. All Scripture, see this is a challenging passage, but we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired. God breathed. It's God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's not a, a, there's not a drop of ink wasted on the pages of scripture, but some scriptures are more uh, can be more easily misinterpreted and misunderstood than others. And let me tell you, the power, the word of God has power, and when it is flipped upside down, it can do great harm, and it can it can cause cutting, it can cause pain. But when you flip it back up again. It brings life. And so, in 2 Timothy, we also hear, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly, what? Handles the word of truth or, or rightly divides the word of truth, some earlier translations say. So we've got to approach the Scriptures in the right way. Sometimes, friends, uh, 
I worry about Christians in our era. It seems like we choose our pastors and our churches on personality and charisma more than on the ability to understand the word of truth and to bring it forward. The chief responsibility of the preaching office is to mine the scriptures of God and to bring the word of God forward for us in a way that is not misapplied but is rightly applied to our lives. So whenever you move on from here, if you, if you graduate and move on, you're trying to find a church, all I want to say is, listen, choose wise instruction over showiness. But let's get these scriptures. Let's look at these scriptures. Because this passage, you know, this is the passage, this is a passage that's been used to prop up both slavery and the practice of slavery and sexism and misogyny. And when these scriptures are thrown upside down, they do great harm. But when they're turned right side up, they bring life. So let's look at this. First, sexism. You heard it as I read it, uh, verses 4 and 5. Then they, that's the older women. Uh, and by the way, there's no asterisk to tell us what age that is. You know, so I'm not calling anybody out. Either direction, you know. We know who we are. Uh, and uh, I think I'm on the older side. Then the older, older women, they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, this, this has been used, misused, to, for someone to step forward and say, a woman's place is in the home, right? You've heard that, right? And this would be a passage you could, you could pull out and say, look, right here. It says, be busy at home. Now, how, how, if that's what this is telling us, how does that match with Proverbs 31? When you go home and you read Proverbs 31, you make that your homework tonight. Proverbs 31 is this entire chapter of Proverbs about the godly woman. And the godly woman, when you read that chapter, she's, she is applied, this godly woman is not only attentive at home and respectful and attentive at home and all of that, but she is applying herself to the marketplace. And she's bringing her value to the marketplace. And she is out there at the city gates and all of that. And all of that. So how do these things fit together? Well, let's listen. It helps to remember that the separation between the public sphere and the private sphere. You know what I'm talking about? So the separation of these two spheres and the assignment of, of gender roles to each of them, that's, an, that's a modern phenomenon. In the ancient world, work and home were much more intertwined and integrated. Most of the work was done in the household. So that's the first thing to sort of put together. When you read this passage, you can't picture Titus preaching to a church in Crete where all the, the men are like grabbing their lunch pail and going out the front door and hopping in their car to go work at the factory at the edge of town. And the, and the woman is standing there with her apron on, right? <laughs> Taking care of home until he comes back from whatever he's doing out there in the public sphere. That isn't how life was lived. The public sphere, the private sphere, they, they blended together. And most work was done in and out of the household. And we already read in chapter 1 of Titus a couple of weeks ago how both men and women were, were called to be attentive to home. And so it isn't one, one type, one gen, sex or gender is supposed to be attentive over here, and then the other one's supposed to be attentive over here. That's a product of this industrial age and the automobile age, and friends, it has actually done damage to us in both directions. As women have been kept from a healthy influence on the public square, and men have been tempted to abdicate their responsibility at home. 
And so we've got to get back into the mindset on which Titus was preaching to his church, where, uh, where home and work were much more bound together. So look at it again. What is this passage telling us? Saying, women, pay attention to your role at home with children. Be respectful and selfless towards your husband. Just as elsewhere, husbands are told to be selfless and loving and sacrificial toward their, their, their wives, toward their wives. And in all of this, it says, I want you to look here with me. All of this is resolving down to this verse in verse 5, where it's saying, look, you're on display. It matters how Christian men treat Christian women. And it matters how Christian women treat Christian, Christian men. Why? Because the world out there is looking at you. And if you blow this, you may malign the word of God. It says, do all this so that no one will malign the word of God. Do you see that? You're on display. And friends, nothing maligns the word of God like a, a, a male Christian leader taking this verse out of context and stepping forward and saying, see, the Bible dictates that a woman's place is in the home. It hinders our witness. It hinders our witness. What about slavery? Verses 9 and 10 force us to ask again, does the Bible endorse slavery? No, not as you think. When we think of slavery, the first thing that comes into our mind is what we understand from our American context and experience of the chattel slave trade system of early American history. And that, that history is awful and horrible. And as we enter Black History Month, we need to remember how that history lingers with us. It shapes us. It still lingers. It's in our history as a nation. But friends, in the Bible, slavery was different. The Bible, slavery was, was more of indentured servitude. And it acted as a social safety net in ancient times. You couldn't turn to government services or something like that if you were being thrown into poverty. And so slavery was something you could do to find work and to find some labor and some measure of care. And so, but listen, when you, when you measure up what the Bible says about slavery, what the Bible teaches about this is you can sell periods of work, but you cannot sell a person. You hear me? So you can sell yourself into a, a period of work and become a slave. And you're going to work in a menial job, and you're, you know, you're not going to be working. It's not a great job, right? It's unpaid. But at the same time, you and your family, your kids, you're going to have food. You're going to have shelter. You're going to have care. You're going to be rescued, in a sense, from poverty. And the Bible lays out all kinds of rules about this. Slaves were to have rights. They were never to be mistreated or abused. They bore the image of God even in that position that they were in, and they were not to be regarded as beasts of burden. They were supposed to participate in the Sabbath rest. They were supposed to participate in the festivals. They were supposed to participate in the seventh year of sabbatical and the jubilee year, the 50th year, where all were set free. And they were supposed to always have their liberation date known in front of them, working toward that day when I've, I've, I've worked my work and now I walk free. So, so look at this passage again, okay? When you get it right side up, can you see what's happening here? The on the first reading, you read it, and it kind of like, mm, what is that? And maybe some of you are even have, have been in places where you've resisted Christianity, thinking that it's against women, that it promotes slavery, that it does all these evil things. Listen, when these scriptures are turned upside down, they do great harm. But can you get them right side up again? And look again at this. 
This scripture is assuming that Titus, as pastor of the church in Crete, is going to be teaching and addressing women at the same time that he's teaching and addressing men. This passage is assuming that Titus, as pastor of the church in Crete, as that church gathers, is going to be addressing an entire, as part of the church gathered in the body of the church, is going to be addressing slaves who have freely come to worship and are regarded as children of God. And as a pastor, Titus has got to step forward and he's got to understand God's got a purpose for each one of these people. He's got meaning for their work. In fact, when they go to work, these, even these folks that are in slavery, when they go to work, the way they do their work is going to make a difference for God. Now listen, you go out and find for me any other ancient text that regards slaves as in a role that has divine and holy and eternal purpose and meaning, and, and I will, as they say, eat my hat, because he won't find it. So what do they say? What does it say here? I know I skipped a passage. Uh, Titus 2.10, when they go out and they work for the Lord, any of them, they'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You see, this gets us a little back on track now. What's the saying? It's the saying, your work matters. No matter what you're doing, how you do your job, it matters. Whether you're in some job that's uh, highly technical, highly regarded, highly paid, highly influential, or you're in a job that is menial and, uh, and task-oriented and, and even you know, unpaid, if you're in a position that you're not getting pay for your labor, your work still matters to God. And if that's true of a first-century slave on the island of Crete, if that's true of someone who was in slavery in the island of Crete in the first century, then friends, are you following me? I don't care how much you hate your boss. <laughs> I don't care how weary you are when you're into work. I don't care how many cups of coffee it takes to get you to your desk and to get you going. I don't care how small you think your job is. Your work matters. Your work matters. And your job can be glorious if you glorify God in your job. The average employee who works to the age of 65 will spend over 88,000 hours at work. Whew. And who, and who retires at 65 these days? So you got more than that to go. 88,000 hours. And do they love their, their job? Nope. Gallup, uh, Gallup sends out a poll every year, and they call it the Employment Engagement Survey. And time and time again, every year it fluctuates in tiny ways, but time and again it comes back and says around two-thirds of all of the employees in the U.S., around two-thirds of them report being either just totally disenfranchised or disengaged at work. Do you know what disengaged at work means? Anybody picture that? That means you look up and you've been on Facebook for an hour. That means you bought stuff on Amazon you didn't even think you needed while you were sitting there at work. Why? Because you hate your job. And two-thirds of people report that they hate their job. And they're going to spend 88,000 hours of their life doing it. Friends, is there any way that God can move into that? Is there any way that the gospel might have something to say to that? Could Jesus care about that? Is there a way that, that understanding who Christ is and, and how he works in our lives could change how we look at our work? 
Well, Titus 2 is, is targeted right at it, friends. It says, look, whatever your role, wherever you're moving forward in your role, whatever you're doing with your job, with your time, your energy, it matters. You're on display, and you're on display for God and for the gospel and for the message of the truth. And so listen, it says, you older, you older folks, would you teach the younger folks? You older women, would you guide the younger women? Older men, guide, would you guide the younger Think of this. Some of you are, would tune out this week because we're talking about the actual workplace. And you're saying, well, I'm in the retirement zone. I mean, I'm not in the workplace, so I'm just going to tune out. Well, no, 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 no. What would you say to your 25-year-old self? If you could have a meeting one hour with your 25-year-old self, if you're older than 25, what would you want to tell that person? Well, you can't do that, can you? But what this is saying is that that's exactly what God wants to do through the church. And no, you can't talk to yourself back then, but you can talk to the church at that earlier stage. Will you build into the next generation? If you're in retirement stage, have you taken time to distill all that you've learned? Have you taken time to, to measure the meaning of your work in such a way that you could provide some wisdom to someone who's coming up behind you? So we've got to train one another up because the gospel's on display. That's what fellows program is all about. I see some fellows in the room. Come on, fellows, put your hand in the air. We were off skiing yesterday, and uh, we love our fellows and the fellows program. And um, this is about building into the next generation that's, that's, that's coming up. Can you do that? Can you build into the next generation? That's what the church wants to give as a gift. Okay, so old men train the young men, old women train the young women. Um, you're on display, and the way you do your work, the way you do what you do will bear witness to whose you are. So is there a way to go to work and to hear good job? Is there a way to have peace in your position and joy in your job? There is. You see, we get flipped around, and we, think, we, either, we either think too much of our work, and we think, this is the way I'm going to justify my existence. I'm going to find all my meaning and purpose in my work. Or we think too little of work. And we think, I'm just going to escape work. It's a burden, and I'm going to disengage, and I'm just going to work for the weekend. But the gospel frees us from both things. So what I want to give you is five questions to apply the gospel to your life at work. Five questions that you can ask yourself to apply the gospel to your life at work. At work. Number one, how can my work serve others? Even when you go and do all these, you just look at these secular surveys and articles about the workplace and everything else, they say job engagement, job satisfaction, it goes up when people do what? When they see that their job is part of a greater purpose and that it serves humanity. Well, then they're more satisfied in their work. Well, why does that make so much sense? Because right here in the Word of God, that as you go to work with a greater sense of purpose and you see that it's making a difference, that's going to elevate your work life. Even if you're a first century slave in Crete, when you go to work doing your best to do your work in a way that reflects Jesus, that's going to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. How much more than for you? In whatever role you're in, whatever work you're in, that when you do that as unto the Lord, you can see its greater purpose and meaning. And you can find deeper satisfaction. Next week, uh, our buddy Yemi Mobilade will be here. And uh, he'll be, sh yeah, woo! We're excited to have Yemi back on stage and preaching for us, all four services. He's going to talk about the city and the common good and how everything that we do in work, it impacts the people around us. And it makes a difference for those around us. How can your work serve others? Number two, number two, how does my work make something of the world? 
How is the job that I'm doing part of that Genesis 1.28 cultural mandate that God made me to live into, that I'm supposed to take things from the material world and I apply my intelligence and my creativity and I build something out of that, I make something out of that that's better than what it was before? How is my work doing that? As you roll back over this passage, you see all these encouragements about how to get at it. You know, get at it in a way, go into the world and work in a way that you're uh, temperate, you've got self-control, you know, that you're building self-respect, that you're someone who who, uh, is, you know, is is developing themselves in a way that that has self-mastery, like that fruit of self-control, that spiritual fruit of self-control and integrity, someone who's worthy of respect. That you, you know, what is integrity? Integrity is a whole person life where everything fits together, it's integrated and balanced. Don't underestimate the impact of being a person whose life simply sits together in a way that gives you peace in your skin as you're walking along in your work life. So it says, get at it in a way that you've got integrity, that you've got self-control, that you're teaching good, you're being kind, you're getting busy, you're, you're, uh, you're respectful, you're demonstrating integrity uh, because, Why? Because the way you do your work, the way you do what you do, reflects whose you are. And in everything that you do, you're on display. And when we go out and and we apply ourselves to the world, we do these things, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to, to what? Eager to do what is good. What I'm saying is that diligence, perseverance, integrity, when you apply yourself to your work with these things, it can lift your work. It can lift your, your job out of the sludge of, of mindless labor when you see what your work makes of the world. That's number two. Number three, how can I do my work God's way? In every job that you have, in every role that you find yourself in, there's a temptation that comes to do it the world's way instead of doing it God's way. Can you do it God's way? Whatever it is you're doing. You see, as, as believers, as followers in Christ with the Holy Spirit within us, we're going to take a different kind of an ethic into our workplaces than those around us. A lot of times. A lot of times it's uncomfortable. Can you do it God's way instead of doing it the world's way? I knew a guy once who, uh, he took his first position out of law school, and it was with this law firm, this big law firm in New York City that does wills and trusts and estates. And he got to work there, and he found, uh, he found kind of like a pile, a neglected pile of trusts. And he figured out that the money was not being dispersed. Even though he looked at you know, he looked at him and he's like, well, wait a minute, it says right here in the will that this money is supposed to go out within five years of the person dying and spend 10 years and the money's still sitting here. And the law firm was profiting by keeping that money in their asset management account, you see? His conscience was troubled. Would yours be? But what's he going to do? He's a first-year flunky at this giant law firm, you know, right out of law school. He's not going to come marching into the partner's office like, I got a problem, you know, with what you're doing. So what does he do? He he prays about it. 
And he asked the Lord to open a window. Friends, it was two years before he had an opportunity to speak to a partner about this. And this is what the partner said to him. He said, yeah, we know about that. It just sits over there. You know, it's not doing anybody any harm. It's not doing anybody any good. But we don't have the time to go back through all those wills and figure out what the original intent was and how to actually disperse it to somebody in some way that matches that intent. So, so we just let it sit there. And we don't have the time to go through it. And there are no family members calling, you know, to bother us about it. And so it's just piled up. And this is what he said to this, this friend of mine. He said, if you want to use your own time to dig into it, go ahead. So you know what he did? He went ahead. Now, follow me now. This young man, two years out of law school, suddenly found himself personally in charge of dispersing over $3 million worth of funds that had been sitting in these trust files. Most of them, he said, most of them designated for Christian purposes in the world. Kingdom money. Friends, when you find the Holy Spirit of God prompting your conscience to do your work in God's way, can I just say, please follow that, right? You don't know what's on the other side of following the prompting of the Holy Spirit to do your work God's way, amen? And I'm expecting each of you to find file folders worth $3 million, <laughs> kingdom money for kingdom purposes, all right? So I'll be waiting. I'll be watching. Okay, number three. Uh, that's number three. Can you do, my, can you do uh, God, uh, your work God's way? Number four, how is my work forming me? How is God using the work you're in to form and shape you to teach you things to make you more like Jesus? Every job that you're in is shaping you. Every, every job that you're in, every role that you're in is forming you. And listen now. God cares much less. God cares less about how much you make it work and more about how much your work makes you and how much it makes you like his son Jesus. One way to bring God into your work life is to simply ask that question, God, how are you using this to shape me to be more like your son Jesus? Number five, number five, how can I glorify God in my work? How can you glorify God in it? There's so many ways you know, I hear so many stories of so many people in so many different positions who found that way to glorify God in the thing that they're doing. And again, Colossians 3, in another passage that was written to encourage people who were in slavery that their work matters and the, their, meaning, their day matters and the way they apply themselves in the image of God in that position matters. Here's what Colossians 3, 23, 24 says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the who? Lord, not for the human masters, not for the human lords, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And friends, as the praise team comes up and we start to move toward communion, just let me tell you, wherever you are in your work, your job can be glorious as you glorify God in your job. You see, it's the Lord Christ you're serving not your bosses around you. And when you serve Christ, when you step forward to serve Christ, let me tell you, He's worthy of your service. He's worthy of it. The Lord, 
The Lord is the one who teaches us as you apply the gospel to your work life. He tells us you don't have to go to work to find affirmation and justification for who you are and what you mean to the world to find your value because your justification and your affirmation and your value have already been named by Jesus Christ who died for you and names you a child of God. And you don't have to just escape work as though it's some meaningless burden that's been thrust on it that you have to do. You can go to your work with zeal and passion because you're not working for those. You're working for the Lord. And Jesus is worthy of zeal and he's worthy of passion and he's worthy of your best energy. And you can go into that work position tomorrow morning for Jesus. And it could change your life. He's worthy of it, all of it, because he's the one who labored to give himself away for us. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions. Why would you say yes to that stuff when Jesus is offering this kind of life? Teaches us to say no and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great, what? God and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. and He's our Savior. And when you go out to serve him, he's worthy of all of it. Jesus is the only boss. He's the only master. He's the only leader. He's the only one who redeems us as we work for him. He doesn't suck the blood out of you like that bad boss. (laughs) He pours life into you by giving his own blood. So as we turn to this table, as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, We see that he's purchased a a place for us, for all of us. He's called all of us to come to the same table and to sit. He sees his church as one body. As the menaces, the servers come forward, we recognize that that Jesus has, has drawn us to one table and one accord. As we have gone through some difficult passages, I do not in the least mean to dismiss the pain that those passages have been used to cause in people's hearts and in the history of our life together. But come again to the table. See the church gathered at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ around one loaf, around one cup for one salvation in his name. As the servers uh, turn and and, uh, and, and, uh, and and you see where they're positioned. We have servers who are holding gluten-free elements. Would you servers lift your hands where you are so we can see that you have gluten-free here and here. And uh, we believe that as parents, uh, we want to support you in raising your kids in the Lord. And it's yours to decide if your kids are ready to receive the elements understanding, with understanding that they're receiving the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We encourage them to come forward and to receive. If they're not ready to receive the elements, we'll have people stationed at either end to pray for. Alan is here to pray, and and, uh, Lydia will be on this corner to pray for your kids. We'd love to bless them. And friends, for all of you, you know, it's a high value for us that we're not asking you to do or say anything that you don't believe. 
So this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he draws his children together for a table feast at the kitchen table. If you're wondering where you are with the Lord, if you're asking questions, you're just here to explore. We want to bless you in that. Don't do anything you don't believe. And maybe just take this time to ask yourself, where am I with the Lord? What does it mean to me what he's done on the cross? What do his body and his blood mean to me? This is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, the table of healing and of redemption and of wholeness, where the places that we've been wounded and, and harmed, they can begin to be restored. Come to the table. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is indeed right, God, to give you thanks and praise in all times and in all places. God, you created the world, all that is seen and unseen, and you created us in your image. And Lord, even when we had everything, we chose to turn our back on you and betray your trust. But God, we thank you that your love was bigger than that. Your grace was bigger than that. And that you loved us so much, you came and took on the form of a human being. Lord, you lived and you died and you rose again so that we could be reconnected to you, restored to relationship with you, reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Thank you that you bore the sins of the world on your body so that we could have that new relationship with you, that new life in you, God. We thank you for that. We thank you that today we can join our voices with brothers and sisters around the world and across time as we pray the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, as the grain from a thousand hills is gathered and pressed into one loaf, as the grapes were gathered and pressed into one cup, so the church comes together as one. Slave, free, Jew, Gentile, men, women, rich, poor, we come together as one body at the table of our Lord Jesus Christ who died to bring us together as a witness to the world. So I hand on to you what I've also received that our Lord Jesus Christ in the night of his arrest, he took bread and blessing it, giving thanks for it, he broke it before his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, Behold, this cup is a new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it all of you do this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again in glory friends these are the gifts of God for the people of God come to the table of our Lord
Thanks for listening to the First Prez podcast. If you would like more information, you may visit our website at firstprezcos.org.